from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, with more than 100 degree programs offered in four locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. West Virginia University, a land-grant, space-grant, R1 research institution. Learn more at wvu.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. And since it's Friday, we're taking a look back at the week as we reach the halfway mark of the 2020 legislative session. Joining me now are Phil Kabler of the Charleston Gazette Mail, Emily Allen of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, and Stephen Allen Adams of Ogden Newspapers. Thank you all for being here tonight. Thanks. Uh, Phil, you covered the legislative leadership speeches at the West Virginia Press Association breakfast this week, something that we do annually about mid-session. Mid now, the Senate President and the House Speaker have very different perspectives on the state of the state than what we heard from the House Minority Leader yesterday. Tell us about yeah, it. It was an interesting time, and uh, as you say, the Press Association annually sponsors this breakfast. Sometimes it falls early in the session, and it's giving an overview of what the leadership wants to accomplish. This year, it fell right on the 30th day, the midway point, and of course, in particular, Mitch Carmichael is one of the great cheerleaders for the state. He sees uh, in endless potential and that things are booming or at least getting much, much better. And the uh, House Minority Leader, former House Speaker Tim Miley, who announced uh, previously that this will be his last year in the uh, legislature, uh, basically, I guess, decided to throw all caution to the wind and tell it like it is. And he said, uh, the, the fact is we, we need to start stop focusing on saying how great things are because things aren't great in West Virginia. And he proceeded to lay out some of the major concerns like population loss, uh, declining enrollment in most schools and saying that we need to find answers to these problems and trying to recruit gun owners from rural Virginia isn't gonna, isn't gonna cut it. So it was very, very frank and honest, uh, uh, I guess what you would call a true state of the state address. And, and so what were uh, Senate President Mitch Carmichael, uh, what were they saying was, was on the bright side or how we are uh, rebounding and, and the Speaker of the House? Well, what they, were they pointing to? And they, they talking about the uh, economic improvement and of course Carmichael in particular reiterated the two main policy object, objectives of leadership, uh, which is to roll back the inventory tax and to uh, establish an intermediate appeals court. And of course, Miley kind of debunked both those saying, uh, if we create a $100 million hole in our budget at a time when we're currently looking at deficits uh, this year and at least through the next three or four years, how are we gonna make this cut? And then for the intermediate appeals court, he said, well, we, we're, we have declining population declining caseload in our courts already. So 
why is the solution to create another level of uh, court bureaucracy? So again, he kind of uh, took the statements of the leaders, which uh, I guess it, it, it's uh, by nature being in, in leadership, you have to promote the state and, and put on the best possible face. But uh, he, he again kind of debunked uh, what they were saying uh, prior to his speaking. And, and uh, uh, Delegate Miley being so, so blunt there, um, I mean, what was, what was the reaction? Everybody was up at the, at the panel at the same time. Yeah, it, it, uh, it's kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, it, uh, and uh, Carmichael is uh, uh, probably as good a sport as there is in politics, so he kind of laughed things off, and uh, there didn't seem to be any uh, great bitterness or sense that they were taking offense, but uh, I think a lot of people were astonished that a politician would come out and, and speak that frankly about the, where things are in the state. Well, when it comes to uh, a difference of opinion, at the beginning of the week, we of course um, had the revenue collections for January, those final numbers, um, you know, and, and some people will say we're ahead. The governor said we were ahead. Uh, while there were Democrats that were saying if you took the original numbers, we're, we're actually behind. Um, let's go ahead and hear a little bit of a clip of, of that. And then I know, Stephen, you've done some reporting on this and we'll come back and talk to you. For our radio audience, we want to let you know the, the remarks, a series of remarks. We'll first hear from Senator Craig Blair. He's Senate Finance Chair. Then we'll hear from Senator Mike Romano, Democrat from Harrison County. Then Majority Whip Senator Ryan Weld of Brook, and then Senator Richard Lindsay, a Democrat from Kanawha County. Uh, and I'd like to draw your attention to the personal income tax. The personal income tax collections was down just under $2 million. Uh, sales tax uh, was above estimates of $1.2 million. And then severance tax uh, was below uh, j just under a million dollars at $834,000. The, the severance tax roller coaster that we seem to be on, and right now it's, it's down. Uh, the prices of energy is down. Uh, the rainy day fund helps provide a smoothing mechanism for that. And so when I'm given these other numbers here that aren't necessarily the best, but they're not necessarily the worst either. When you see where we're headed financially, you have to ask yourself why. But look at our major goals this session. Intermediate Court of Appeals. I've yet to meet anybody outside of this room or the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that thinks that's a good idea or worthwhile. We want to eliminate the business personal property tax without a real substantive replacement, which will devastate our counties, devastate our public schools, devastate the services they provide, like running senior centers and emergency squads and law enforcement. It'll devastate our public education. I want to touch on something that the Senator from Harrison was talking about. Actions of this legislature to devastate county budgets and devastate the services the counties provide. What that resolution was is a discussion, and it starts the ball rolling, that if future legislatures or this legislature chooses to do something, we may on taxation. Doesn't mean we will. Doesn't mean that there's a set plan to do so. But yet, that's what we're talking about, is that we're going to devastate counties. 
we're going to devastate the taxation, devastate the school system by that action. And that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a resolution that would then go to the people of this state to vote on whether or not they want to amend the Constitution to give the legislature future authority to do so. This tax has been talked about obviously for some time and I think everyone on this side of the aisle has always said we're open to discussions we just want to know how to pay for it. The people of West Virginia should know who's going to pay for it. So Stephen the, the discussion started out on the state revenue collections and quickly went to that um, to the suggestion, the proposal to repeal those large or the property taxes on large manufacturing, as we just heard. Uh, tell us about your reporting on this and, and, and is that tax repeal getting, getting traction? Well, the two issues are going to be very tied together, especially as we go on and as we debate this issue on the business inventory tax phase out. Because when you look at the numbers for January, for example, 437.5 million. Sounds great, it's 13 million above the estimate, until you realize that 20 million of that is one-time money that was transferred from state treasurer John Perdue. And then when you look even further and realize that the revenue estimates were amended, which is pretty common after the state of state, but this was lowered by 6 million. So if you actually subtracted, we're 13 million below estimate, not 13 million above estimate. So when you're having these discussions talking about a phase out of the business inventory tax, which I believe the first phase out of that would be 25 million uh, for the first year, and we're talking about being 13 million under, I mean, those are things you gotta think about when you're making that decision. And so far, as far as I know, Senate Democrats haven't really been brought into the discussion. They certainly haven't been brought into tailoring how that amendment and that resolution would work. They're basically being told what it is in committee and, and on the floor. So understandably, they're a little frustrated, both seeing these numbers and not being involved in the process. Mm -hmm. Emily, you spent even part of today um, looking at a bill or following a bill in committee rather that um, seeks to cap the monthly cost of insulin for West Virginia patients. Tell us, uh, tell us about that issue. There was a caravan to Canada consideration. What, uh, what's happening there? Yeah, so I've spent the better part of today in the Judiciary Committee in the House. This was the third time that House Bill 4543, I think that's the right number, it was being considered, and that's what you described. I think an important thing to note is that it only applies to um, insured West Virginians, West Virginians with insurance, that fall under the state jurisdiction. Um, so like Medicare, which is kind of in the federal realm of things, uh, doesn't really do anything for that. And um, just anything that kind of has federal jurisdiction. So it would apply to uh, members of the PEIA program, um, private insurance, and a couple other things that in state code fall for it. So it caps the copay through this insurance for consumers to $25 uh, per a 30-day period usually happens to be a month. This is significantly a bit lower than other states that have done something similar. I know Colorado has done $100. Uh, Virginia, they don't have it yet, but their like House of Delegates body just also passed kind of a similar motion. Um, so it came out of judiciary today. It did pass. It got eight amendments, which were mostly, um, you know, doing with language because there's a lot of different parties involved in this. Um, we've talked to Delegate Barbara Fleischauer, one of the sponsors, um, ironically, or not ironically, but it's bipartisan. So mm -hmm. Delegate Jordan Hill of the Health Committee, the first uh, group that looked at this, is actually the bill's lead sponsor. 
Um, so there's a bunch of different things involved. Everybody says it's you know meant to put the consumers first, but all of committee today, uh, you know, we heard about well, how is this going to impact pharmacies? How is this going to impact manufacturers? Manufacturers aren't legally obligated to you know produce their drug in a way that is super accessible for West Virginians. So it, could this scare them off? Uh, you know, us telling them that their drug at the bottom of the point is going to cost this much for consumers. Who is the cost actually going to fall on? Um, ultimately, you know, I think everybody in the Judiciary Committee today and the last so many committees um, recognize that there are different parties involved here, but they are moving forward with it. Uh, members of both parties putting this um, cap on the final coke. And, and what are they suggesting with the cap? Something like $25? Yep, $25, $25 out of pocket. Day. Yep. Okay, yeah. and that, that's significant. Um, in, a, in a state that is, you know, among the highest per capita with, uh, with diabetes, and um, this is just this really, really significant. Um, Phil, you know, we were talking the, the discussion about what would county governments do um, with the loss of that, w with the loss of that, uh, those um, manufacturing taxes. A an interesting bill that you know the the idea has been around a lot. Senate Bill 138. Um, it, it passed easily today with, without any remarks. This would incentivize the consolidation of local governments. Talk about that. I know you've done some reporting yeah, on that. And it's uh, been on the books, I think uh, it was 2012 when Brooks McCabe, uh, then Senator, now a PSC commissioner, uh, led the push for consolidating local governments. And I think he was inspired by uh, the metro government in Louisville and some of the economies of scale there. So we've had this law in the books for uh, coming up on eight years now and no, no cities and no counties have merged into metro government. So this bill and it, it was a version of it passed the Senate last year and didn't make it in the House uh, kind of incentivizes, as you say, that local governments to uh, merge together to either form larger cities or counties and cities forming metro governments. And there's a number of carrots in the bill. I think one of the big ones is that for 10 years, the uh, state would pay 10% of premiums to uh, municipal pension funds, which is a big issue for particularly a lot of uh, cities. And there would be uh, other incentives that counties that uh, would go into metro government would see their uh, the state would pay 10% of their uh, regional jail bills for 10 years, which is, as we've talked about before, the, the uh, escalating cost of incarcerating people in our regional jails is, is really a burden for counties. So there's a number of, of uh, as I say, carrots to try to incentivize these communities to merge. And we'll see how, how far that bill gets this time and whether, whether that's really the push these, these uh, cities and counties need to look at uh, merging. Uh, there are certainly a lot of financial stresses, particularly on smaller counties and smaller municipalities, but there's also a lot of uh, political pressure. Uh, it would be like uh, if Charleston and South Charleston were to merge, one side or the other would probably scream bloody murder about not wanting to be part of the other community. So, uh, it, uh, it was trying to overcome that obstacle and do things that could have some real economies of scale if they were enacted. And, and it's uh, on its way over to the House. Right. Okay. Um, Stephen, I know you've been doing some reporting on the foster care bills. Why don't we uh, 
start with you, some updating on some of the action that was taken on those this week. Well, I sat in on a press conference earlier this week with uh, House Democratic leaders, specifically talking about these foster care issues in light of the fact that the session's been very slow. Uh, and that's not unusual, though it has been unusual for the last number of years. And they see things, and this all goes back to the business and inventory tax bill or even the intermediate appellate courts bill. They feel that the Republican leadership is focusing too much on these issues. One that obviously over four years puts a $100 million hole in the budget. The other one, uh, the intermediate appellate court bill would obviously cost some money all the while while legislative Republicans have talked about trying to deal with foster care issues leading into this session, and there are a number of bills, there's actually a total of 12 bills that have been introduced, and obviously the big one is House Bill 4094, and House Bill 4092 is the one that's waiting right now in House Finance, which would do the bill rights for foster care families and children. It also includes uh, updating the reimbursement rates for foster families and kinship families. Well, I, I do want to say that later, af after the Democrats had their press conference, um, House Health Chair Jordan Hill put out a statement, a press release, that um, you know that characterization of being slow is not fair. That, um, that they are thoroughly going through bills that had gone through the health, it was then in, uh, had made it over to finance, as you mentioned. And, um, you know, so he was saying they were taking a thorough, deliberative, um, uh, you know, stance on, on all of this. Sure, and actually at the same time they were having that press conference, the House Finance Committee was grilling uh, Jeremiah Samples, uh, the deputy director of uh, the Department of Health and Human Resources. So th that was part of the impetus of that press release because while you're complaining about it downstairs, we were actually talking about it. And apparently that bill is supposed to come up before House Finance, I believe, next week. And then there was a, a CPS bill, um, real briefly. You can. One of us can talk about it. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, and I mean, so you're just talking about them grilling Jeremiah Samples. I was there, I believe you're talking about the DHHR's budget presentation, correct, yes. in the House? Mm -hmm. So I was there for that. They talked about it. Um, obviously, Child Protective Services is, I book, Child Welfare Issues is number two among Bill Crouch, the Secretary's three priorities. So a little bit afterward in the other chamber, the Senate, they considered a bill, you know, um, I think the best way to phrase it is improving kind of like staffing conditions for CPS workers. So it kind of, um, you know, addresses what they get paid per job. Um, there's it's a bunch of different language things because, you know, before the session started, there was a legislative audit report that came out basically saying, you know, CPS workers aren't addressing about half of the cases they get, or at least not adequately, not with the, you know, the required amount of time provided for that. So they're trying to um, lessen the caseloads for these CPS workers. They're trying to make conditions better for them. They're trying to figure out, um, you know, there are two ways you can become a CPS worker. Either you study it in college and you get kind of a social work degree, or you can come in and get a certain amount of training after that and become it. So they want to, A, entice people who are studying social work in West Virginia to actually end up in the career here, want to work for the DHHR and help our crisis. Um, and they're also trying to, you know, address ways to get other more qualified people in to help to lessen the caseloads of people that are already working on this. Terrific. Thanks, Emily. Now, yesterday we all heard uh, Delegate Pat McGeehan, a Republican of Hancock County, uh, make remarks again uh, for the second time this week, at least the second time, about his Defend the Guard Act. And this is a bill that seeks to, uh, a formal declaration of war by Congress 
before the deployment of West Virginia National Guard members in, in active combat situations. He made remarks, um, like I said earlier in the week, he made them yesterday during Veterans Visibility Day at the Capitol. We'll listen to that and then come on back. But I'll tell you one thing, one thing that needs to be done that also simultaneously shows the utmost respect for our veterans is to simply follow the Constitution and not send our men and women in uniform overseas into undeclared, unconstitutional, unnecessary foreign wars over and over again. That is the best way to show respect to the men and women in, our, in uniform serving our great country. So when the rubber meets the road, and I present you with an option to do that, show some courage and some respect, just like our veterans have. Uh, Delegate McGeehan has, has never been afraid to, in, in, in his thoughts, uh, uh, speak truth to power. I mean, he, he has, um, you know, countered on what the leadership in the House has taken a stand on over and over. Talk to Stephen about, you know, how this, this bill, the Defend the Guard, has been an issue that he's tried to bring up um, and get on a committee calendar now for at least two sessions. Sure, this is the fifth time he's introduced time. it. But last year was the closest it ever came to getting through. He chaired the Veterans uh, Affairs Committee last year, was able to get it out of committee and then the House Judiciary where it got stuck. And then they did a discharge motion last year, which got tabled, but then they tabled the motion to do that and then was able to bring it back and got it on the second reading last year. But then it got put in the House rules and on the inactive calendar. So this was his, uh, now second attempt to trying to get it onto a vote by the House floor and of course that was a 50-50 vote uh, to discharge the bill which failed but that was also after they also did a motion to try to table that motion which also failed 50-50 so they got to discuss it a little bit. All right and uh, one last thing that we're not going to be able to get to or clips from today and that is uh, Senate Bill 275 a bill that would create an intermediate court of appeals in West Virginia, uh, that was uh, that was passed out of the Senate after an amendment failed to uh, make that uh, m make that uh, a, an appeals court for not only um, civil cases but also criminal cases. And um, of course, that that amendment failed, so the uh, the bill 275 now goes over to the House. Uh, folks, we are so uh, grateful that you were able to join us. Phil Kavler of the Charleston Gazette Mail, Emily Allen of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, and Stephen Allen Adams of Ogden Newspapers. Thank you so much. Thank you. And one last look back at this week. Lawmakers were among hundreds of West Virginians who took a ride to uh, off-road highway ride an excursion. Randy Yowie reports. It's a rainy Saturday as more than 100 off-highway vehicles, mostly Jeeps, are loading up with moms and dads, kids and pets. This caravan is led by the West Virginia Jeep Club and State Senator Mark Maynard, a Republican from Wayne County. We're headed away from the cement and marble-filled Capitol grounds to a country road about 15 minutes away. Beyond, old utility and logging trails traversing through Kanawha County public lands provide the perfect playground for these outdoor off-highway enthusiasts. Not really accelerating, you're just maintaining momentum. 
Steve Austin is the trail director of the organized and active West Virginia Jeep Club. Austin commandeered his modified four-wheeler through some rough and rain-soaked trail stretches. Austin says with some state help, off-highway vehicle recreation would develop a much greater population base. We'd like to open this up so that veterans or disabled or elderly can, can enjoy this great state that we're blessed to live in. But here in West Virginia, access is limited. Right now there is no state land, no federal land in West Virginia, no state parks, no national forest that allow this type of off-highway vehicle trail ride activity. We just want access. It's taxpayer land and I think every recreation should be represented. I don't want run of the whole land, but I would like my little piece. Senator Maynard says this is a billion dollar industry. He hopes the trip boosts support for soon to be introduced Senate Bill 690. It has in it uh, special purpose vehicle licensing to deal with some of our super strict modified sticker laws in this state. More than a half dozen legislators joined in the trail ride and all say they see economic benefits to expanding off-highway vehicle trail recreation. It's a great tourism opportunity for West Virginia. We've got to make sure that we have the, the trails available for people to come here. You know, you have Teleco down in North Carolina, Land Between the Wakes in Tennessee. Those are the big uh, off-road areas in the East Coast. We should be one of them. We have the land for it, and we actually live closer to the population centers. For the West Virginia Jeep Babes, OHVing is all about fun and family. It's just a bunch of girls. We like we love off-roading and it's it's a family, it's a lifestyle. I mean we love it and we get together as much as we can. Pass back behind you. Does anybody need to stop for a vehicle check? So is it a sport, an adventure, an excursion, a hobby, all of the above? These off-roaders say come along, ride our West Virginia trails, and find out. In Kanawha County, I'm Randy Yoey for the Legislature Today. I do need to correct myself. Senate Bill 275, the Intermediate Court uh, Bill, was on second reading. It's now on third reading. It will be up for passage on Monday in the Senate. Senator Maynard's bill, Senate Bill 690, creating that Overland Recreation Fund, was introduced this week and is now in the Committee of Government Organization. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us this week. Have a great weekend.